What is going on, movie lovers? Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening. And after a week off, I was basically living in the movie theater this week and hit really three, probably the three most anticipated movies for me uh, in 2021. I'm talking about Dune this week. I'm talking about Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho and, of course, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. And honestly, I, I kind of loved all of them. So uh, instead of the usual format, we're going to be doing three featured reviews. Um, they'll be a little bit shorter than normal, but uh, really giving all three of these movies the full treatment that they deserve. Because um, in my top 15 of 2021 so far, all three of these movies are in it. So that is, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. That's, what is that, 20% of my list that was updated this week. Uh, here's just a quick rundown, um, of the top 15 movies I have of 2021 so far. So number one, Coda, number two, Promising Young Woman, number three, Judas and the Black Messiah, number four, Mass, number five, Nomadland, number six, The Father, number seven, Dune, number eight, Last Night in Soho, number nine, The Last Duel, number 10, In the Heights, number 11, Untold Breaking Point, that is uh, the documentary on Netflix. Number 12, Monster. Number 13, Nobody. Number 14, Pig. And number 15, The French Dispatch. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the top 15 for 2021. Um, if you've seen any of those movies or if you think I screwed up those rankings, you can get in touch with me at Mr. Matt Craig on Twitter or through my newsletter at mattcraig.substack.com. But we're talking Dune. That's where we're starting. Let's jump into it. There was a period in my childhood, uh, long before I started watching or caring a lot about movies, when my favorite movie of all time was Avatar. I'm only slightly too embarrassed to admit that now. I went to it three times in theaters, which is a record only topped many years later by La La Land, five times, (laughs) a story for a different time. Uh, And I was driven by that same fascination that captivated audiences years earlier with Titanic and before that, Star Wars, Jaws, 2001, A Space Odyssey, back to, you know, Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. Every generation has their giant spectacle movie, which redefines what a movie can be and pushes the ceiling a little higher on what they're capable of achieving. Dune carries that legacy now, taking the belt mercifully from Avengers Endgame. To see this movie is to be humbled by its overwhelming audiovisual experience, quite literally awing viewers into submission. If ever there were a movie to see on the biggest theater screen possible, this is it. Nothing has ever been done on this scale before, and never with this level of precision. It's important to make the distinction between the grandiose terms used so far and a simple evaluation of the movie's merits. But the simple fact is none of the previous belt holders mentioned here were, you know, quote-unquote great stories, except for Jaws, maybe. Uh, Dune is a messianic sci-fi story based on a book that predates and certainly sets the pattern for the likes of Star Wars and Blade Runner and all those that came after, but can hardly be called original when you consider, you know, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and that little old indie bestseller called The Bible. Uh, 
The hero is played here by Timothy Chalamet, an actor who is his own sort of messiah to this dying era of movie stardom. He is the chosen one, and as is his character here, matching royal charisma with magical powers, if only he can realize his potential and bring balance to the force, or, or wait, hold on, I got my identical storylines mixed up, bring peace to the empire, yes, that's it. Where director Denis Villeneuve deserves enormous credit, aside from coordinating hundreds upon hundreds of crew members to create some of the most unforgettable large-scale movie moments in many years, is introducing casual viewers like myself to a massive mythology of an entire galaxy without feeling too burdensome. Sure, the first half of the movie leaks exposition like a sieve, explaining the geopolitics of the various houses and races, explaining the magic, and introducing us to no less than 20 characters, but anyone who has watched the early seasons of Game of Thrones or suffered through disasters like Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets can appreciate the economy and style with which Villeneuve unfurled his guidebook. The simplicity of that familiar storyline helps with the shorthand, uh, and in classic blockbuster style, a viewer doesn't really have time to figure out what's going on in the big picture because each immediate moment is so propulsive and urgent. It's always, you know, run and fight, get to the ship, fly away, oh no, out of gas, and on and on and on until eventually Hero fights Big Bad and then it ends. The only difference here is a lack of resolution because this two-hour and 35-minute movie is only half of the first Dune book. If ever there were an example of movies becoming TV, it's Warner Brothers dropping close to half a billion uh, on basically an unresolved pilot episode that money of course did buy an absolute gluttony of acting talent oscar isaac josh Brolin, zendaya javier bardem rebecca ferguson stellan skarsgård jason momoa dave batista charlotte rampling who plus i mean of course some of the greatest cgi i've ever seen which is why you know being quote-unquote good is almost entirely besides the point movies at this scale are measured in it works or it doesn't work and in this case, Dune really works. It's a financial and critical success, not only marked as a, not entirely marked as a win in the dramas for adults column, but tipping enough toward respectability that the Academy Awards would be very foolish not to reward it. Regardless, you're not going to want to miss this cultural touchdown. And listen, I know it's available on HBO Max, and that's super easy, but it's almost not even worth watching without that giant screen and surround sound. Just trust me on this one. All right, next up, we're talking about Last Night in Soho, which is currently available in theaters. And first of all, we got to say the trailer for Last Night in Soho fell into my white boy Rick theory from a few years ago of actually being too good. The swinging 60s nostalgia noir set to Anya Taylor-Joy's silky vocals from the trailer looked incredible, but it turned out to be a pretense set up to be destroyed as the movie progresses. An excellent but entirely different experience from the expectation created by the movie's marketing. Taylor-Joy's vocals are still present and still silky. She becomes the embodiment of that bygone era for our point of view character, played well by Thomasin McKenzie, best known from Jojo Rabbit, who escapes present day London in her dreams each night to live out the woman's parallel life in the same Soho neighborhood some 60 years earlier. The sweeping visuals and period production design are incredible here. 
in a much more grounded and practical way than Dune, but are just as arresting. The dazzling neon lights and the red velvet jazz clubs give way to damp and dark streets and fedoras tracked around in long unbroken shots with precise choreography. For someone as prone to nostalgia as me, for a past I never experienced and which never actually existed in the glossy, exciting form I'm imagining in my mind's eye, the narrative thrust of this movie was very effective. The lesson here is that nostalgia is dangerous because distortion leads a sort to sort of a, a betrayal of the mind. Our heroine's visions of the past go from nirvana to nightmare, as the harsh realities of the time period catch up with her surrogate. She goes from wanting to be the woman in her dreams to desperately trying to escape her. That's when the movie turns sharply towards something resembling horror, even a handful, uh, even with a handful of jump scares. It means less time spent in the 60s world, shame, and like a lot of, lot of vibe-forward movies, there's some momentum lost when you have to actually get to the meat of the story, but it produces some nice twists on the way to a fairly satisfying ending. Simply put, Edgar Wright belongs on that short list of directors who you can just blindly trust to create something awesome. He's quickly rising on my list of faves, having already done Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Shaun of the Dead, and Baby Driver, and now he's shown he's just as good with horror as he is with action and comedy. It's a shame that this movie is going to be buried at the box office by Dune and this weekend's Eternals, because it's built to be a popcorn hit, accessible to anyone who's a fan of the great uh, psychological thrillers of the past. Or, wait, were those psychological thrillers of the past actually great, or is that just nostalgia? All right, last but certainly not least, we're talking about The French Dispatch, which is also currently in theaters. Dismissing one of the foremost masters of movie craft with adjectives like whimsical or twee, the latter in an attempt to cleverly comment on the man's frequent wardrobe of tweed suits, seems pretentious and entirely missing the point. What Wes Anderson is, unabashedly, is himself. Perhaps more than any other director, a viewer can identify a movie, say, The Grand Budapest Hotel, or The Royal Tenenbaums, or A Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, as one of his almost instantly. His symmetric framing, precise camera movements, and quirky production design are one of a kind. He leans all the way into his signature style in his latest project, an anthology movie about a thinly fictionalized New Yorker magazine set in a thinly fictionalized French town. The movie is divided into magazine sections, so short, punchy stories up front, features in the middle, and a sentimental send-off at the end, with voiceover coming in the customary cadence of high literature. The union makes sense. A magazine is nothing more than a curated worldview, and a subscription is just an aspirational exercise in identity. So with this movie, like a magazine, you're either in or you're out. Of course, I'm all the way in. Anderson is one of my favorite directors and magazines are my dream job. This world is fully realized and immaculately rendered from the story about a prisoner who paints abstract art masterpieces in his, of his muse slash cell guard to a student revolution settled over games of chess to a profile of a police chef who becomes the key figure in a high stakes heist 
all of the many tales are wonderfully Wes. Admittedly, the stories are short and mostly ridiculous. The characters, as a result, remain quite broad, and the storytelling cares little for complexity. The movie instead flies by like a theme park ride, asking its viewers to forego a deep understanding and surrender to the overwhelmingly impressive filmmaking, wrapping each segment in a Russian nesting doll of framing devices and aesthetics, at one point transforming into a full-on animation for an entire action sequence. The fragmented narrative allows for upwards of 30 or more beloved actors casually casting the likes of multiple-time Oscar nominees like Ed Norton and Saoirse Ronan, and multiple-time Emmy winners like Elizabeth Moss and Liev Schreiber, as characters with no name and two to three lines of dialogue. A quick count says at least five Oscar winners here. Francis McDormand, Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Christoph Waltz are all in the bunch and adding to the feeling that each frame is overstuffed with stimulation and often the most interesting thing may be happening in the background. So really, if you're willing to jump jump aboard the Wes Anderson train, maybe we'll call it the Twee Express, then you're in for a wild ride to France via New Yorker. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this week's triple episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you get to check out these movies in theaters, uh, any of them, all of them. <laughs> if you're like me, you can go to three three times in four nights. Um, yeah, la- these, these three movies are great. Uh, coming up next week's show, uh, we've got The Harder They Fall, which is the Black Cowboy movie on coming out on Netflix. Very excited for that, as well as Spencer. <laughs> the much anticipated Princess Diana, Diana biopic starring, uh, of course, of course, Oscar favorite Kristen Stewart. Um, so we got those two movies to look forward to. Uh, we'll be back to our normal schedule, so you'll get something new, something old, something to stream. Um, and Trailer Watch, let's not forget Trailer Watch. If you head over to the newsletter at maccraig.substack.com, this week's Trailer Watch was The Power of the Dog, which is one of the odds-on favorites to win Best Picture this year. Uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, directed by Jane Campion. So if you're interested in that, head over to the newsletter. Check out check out that. Uh, as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for spreading the word, sharing this uh, podcast with somebody who you think would be interested in uh, weekly movie recommendations. Guys, all right. This was the 150th, not podcast, but the 150th newsletter uh, version of my movie's uh, reviews. Wow. Uh, over three years now. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Thank you guys for the support. Thank you for reading, listening, whatever you've done throughout the years. Uh, and here's to 150 more. Until then, until next week, I guess, I'll see you at the movies.